0: Here's the thing, though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing, Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Press. What up? Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going?
1: I'm good. I'm cosy. I'm drinking my cup of tea. The The lighting in here is a bit moody. Got a coffee candle on.
0: Mm. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. I am, like, unreasonably cold right now. I am, like, sitting here wrapped up in, like, the fluffiest, thickest, like, robe, and then I have a blanket around me on top of that, and I have a cup of tea.
1: (laughs) You're in, what, four or five layers right now? I'm literally
0: wearing, yeah, because I'm wearing, like, a turtleneck and a fleece-lined dress and a fluffy robe and a blanket. It's just the iron deficiency, man. I'm just cold. (laughs) But anyway, it's been a pretty intense week, aside from this crazy stormy weather, uh, there's just been a lot that's been going on in the news that I want to talk about a little bit in our follow-up section because it's pretty big. Uh, the first thing that I want to bring up is the horrific uh, Atlanta shooting that happened in the US uh, where a white man, I think he was 21, um, drove to several like Asian spa locations and shot a bunch of Asian people, predominantly Asian women. Uh, the coverage in America was actually so fucked. Like, I know I shouldn't be surprised. Like, it's so obviously racially motivated. The shooting. Like, this man drove past several other locations, and he he like he was a spree shooter. He went to multiple locations. I think I think in total he killed eight people, then injured a bunch of others. Um, six of those people were Asian women, but. The media, especially like white supremacist American media has been covering this as like, no, this isn't racially motivated. It's because they were women. As if that makes it (laughs) somehow like less problematic. Like, don't worry guys, it's not racism. It's just good old misogyny. Cause what basically happened is he claimed that he was trying to eliminate, like that he had a sex addiction and he was trying to eliminate his quote unquote temptations. And so he went and shot up a bunch of Asian women um, and a cop that was giving a press conference about this whole thing was essentially he said quote that the guy was just having like a bad day, like he said a bad day and i just I wanted to bring that up because when women have a bad day, we just like go home and like cry, and like women are more likely to harm themselves when they have a bad day. when men have a bad day, they go and commit hate crimes like this is fucked like It's very reminiscent, I feel, of not that long ago in Sydney when a police officer was filmed assaulting a First Nations kid and then the cops defended him by saying that he was just having a bad day and it was just an off day. And I don't understand how white men continually get away with assaulting, murdering, killing, raping like ethnic people Uh, because they're just having a bad day as if like we are constantly the collateral damage of their quote-unquote mental illness and I say quote-unquote because like we all know that I'm sure he did have like some kind of mental illness as a lot of people do but to Just kind of say that that's the reason he went and shot people is ridiculous because you know what? A lot of people are mentally ill. In fact, you know what? We're more likely as people of color to be mentally ill than white people and you don't see us going around and fucking shooting white people because we're just having a bad day. It's so ridiculous just what we let white men get away with and there's been refusal of media to even refer to it as a hate crime claims that, oh, well, he didn't say that it's racially motivated, so it's not as if like this man is the authority on his own. Hate crime, But anyway, it's just been an exhausting time for, I imagine, a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it's disgraceful. And I imagine we'll talk more about it later today.
0: Yes, it's definitely going to be relevant to some of the other things I want to say. I'm going to kind of use that because just another quick thing on it. It was like very much targeting Asian sex workers in particular. And I think discussing sex workers and consent and sexual assault and assault is kind of a big deal right now, especially because of just what keeps happening in our government. <sighs> I mean, we're aware. We've been like regularly on the podcast discussing Brittany Higgins um, and just like the continual slew of, of accusations with like I Emma mean, Chris Porter and just all of it. Uh, and then just recently, the police commissioner, which I just, this guy's a fucking idiot. Like, I'm sorry, but I feel like every time he says something, it's stupid. And he just he just said that we should have a consent app. So that women can record their consent and then that way we'll know if women consented
1: problem solved
0: problem solved they'll just tick a box and now it's not our problem anymore and it just i mean i did a post about it on instagram but it just infuriates me so much that these people think that consent can be reduced to a yes no button like as if that's just all consent is it doesn't account for the fact i mean i mean look having a consent app is just the most ridiculous and absurd suggestion i've ever heard in the first place but Despite that, I'm actually gonna humor it for a second. And even if we did fucking have a consent app, like what if you wanna like revoke consent? It has no understanding of that, because the implication is a woman feels horny and wants to have sex and that's what consent is. She's ticked that she feels like having sex on this app, and anything that happens to her after that is consensual because she like wanted to have sex at some point. Which is just ridiculous, because what if she no longer wanted to have is she gonna go back and undo? Is there like an undo button? Like I just and it, yeah, like mid-rape, she's gonna be like, hang on. I just have to undo the consent button on my phone. It's mm. just, it's absurd.
1: It's- and beforehand, like you have to scan my QR code. Like, can you get me on your, your thing?
0: Oh, it's just- Yeah, your list of consensual sexual activities exactly. in there. Exactly.
1: And I, I, I want the government to know that as well, hey. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, we just want to bureaucratize everything. We're just turning sex into like another thing, another governmental quantifiable thing where it's its just the way we, Yeah. Everything's a bureaucracy.
0: It's so absurd. And even that, like, what frustrates me the most is, like, the implication in that press conference about it was that if we have a consent app, then it will protect men from being accused of raping women. Like, it's not even about protecting women. It's not even about preventing the rape of women. It's about preventing women from accusing men of raping them because, look, here's our little app proof that you actually said yes. Like, it's not... It's coming from this messed-up angle of still, like, where women are... Not really at the center of this conversation, where like it's like, how can we stop scandals in the parliament? It has nothing to do with how can we protect people. Consent laws should be about protecting the victimized party. It should not be about protecting rapists. So it's just it's fucked. I'm, I'm angry about it, but at least some some little some small silver lining, some good news is that Victoria um has just ruled to make it mandatory to have consent education in schools which is really good because as you guys know we talked about in the past podcast episodes that there was a petition going around um to try and get consent education to become a thing in schools so like I mean it's a good thing that I guess this may may become a thing I don't know how useful it's going to be because it depends on like what they're actually teaching students and if and how how much it even covers but it's a step it's a start it's a little win that I feel like I'm just gonna be happy with because everything is fucked I mean there was a press conference literally today. Uh, just bef- we just watched it before we started recording, uh, where Scott Morrison was addressing a pretty explosive new development. Where, <laughs> God, where like parliament staffers, male staffers, apparently recorded themselves like masturbating over female MPs' desks, and apparently male staffers just like run around the building ranking on things and exposing themselves, and they think it's fucking funny. Like I just, this is absurd. You could not write this. In what fucking world do we have men running around like children pulling their dicks out and just like ranking on people's desks? Like, is this not fucking wild? Like, you can't even write shit this absurd. Like, I wouldn't even see this in like a satire. It's just fucked up and just goes to show how we, we like have no idea how incredibly fucked working in parliament must be for women. Um, and it's got <laughs> Scott Morrison in the presser said, like he was talking about how he you know he wants to implement change. He's hired the most women out of any other prime minister. He really is doing work for equality. And then he said, I need women to stand with me as I do these things. And I just think like, is this not peak white man making him the center of like an issue? This is not about you, Scott Morrison, and how much support you... Imagine telling women to stand with you when they're the ones being like sexually assaulted and abused and ridiculed and bullied and humiliated. You should be standing with women. Women do not need to fucking stand with you. The audacity of Scott Morrison to get up there in a press conference and beg women to side with him as he, as he does his best. Like, what about all the women you fucking ignored? Why aren't you standing with them? It's just, I'm done with, I mean, I'm, I say this every week, but I'm fucking done with Australian politics. It's just embarrassing. It is fucked up.
1: In lighter news.
0: In lighter news, we finally watched Moxie yesterday with a bunch of you lovely listeners who joined us for a Netflix party, which was super fun. And because a lot of you have been asking us to talk about Moxie, I'll take a little second to say what I thought about it. Um, I think for the most part, it was like just a fun, fluffy, like liberal feminist movie that is just there. I think it does some good things in the background. I just wish they were in the foreground. I feel like it does a good job of highlighting certain issues. Like it mentions how much we erase people with disabilities. It mentions how much we kind of objectify black women, how much we let men get away with sexual assault, how we treat bodies differently depending on how sexualized we view them to be. Like it had interesting ideas, I think, and like brings up feminist issues that are like actually surprisingly topical. But at the same time, I feel like they were in the background and maybe if we had a marginalized person as the protagonist, I would have liked it a lot more because I just don't understand why the main character, Vivian, who is like an upper middle class white girl that hasn't really experienced much oppression before. She's like the face of this revolution and she is the face of feminist politics and it's very strange like it doesn't seem in the movie it doesn't reconcile it they never really give a reason of why this is her story somebody mentioned that perhaps it's her story because she she grows so much and stories are about growth but she's not even the person that has the most personal growth in this narrative so it kind of it's very strange I also there
1: isn't growth like in the first half of the movie she's just like you know Chilling in the background, and then overnight she turns into this feminist riot Girl icon. Like, there isn't growth. It's very, yeah. much, uh, it's a bit forced. It's forced, and that's probably my main issue with the movie. I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. I'd probably recommend it, uh, if you want something nice and chill. To I don't put know on if I'd, I'd recommend it, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Well, anyways, if I had one word to describe this movie and I'd probably say the same thing about promising young woman which you can you can hear our thoughts about a few episodes ago is that it's it's didactic I feel like everything in this in the movie is just here to teach like you know a moral lesson all the characters are just stand-ins for these greater social issues and I think we just need to start seeing these sort of stories that don't pat themselves on the back for talking about these grand issues but actually maybe present reality really the way it is so it's not all these stories which have white women as the focus, but can actually be intersectional without just saying, oh, look at us, look how intersectional we are. Like we say these buzzwords. It's fine. It's maybe even better than I was expecting, but I feel the same way about this and Promising Young Woman.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say it was better than I was expecting. Like when I saw the trailer, I was like, this looks like white feminist trash. And some of it is white feminist trash, but it it actually like... The interesting thing about this movie is the women of colour in this movie are the heart of the movie and are the best part of the movie and are genuinely really wonderful to watch. And they're the kind of girls where you're like, man, I want to be friends with you. Like, I like you guys. You guys are funny, interesting. I just don't get why they aren't the main characters because this movie really kind of is about them. And they are the ones who start the narrative and it's the women of color that kind of start the feminist revolution in the school. And they're the ones who uphold it, and they're the ones who keep it alive. And it's so strange that they chose like this blonde upper middle class white girl to be the face of it when when you actually watch the movie, she's kind of irrelevant but is still the main character. It's very strange. And she's also like just not that likable as a character because like, I mean, the problems we watch her face and stuff, they seem trivial compared to everybody else's in the movie. And it's strange that they chose her to be in the foreground of it.
1: I love that we're getting these films, which are really topical and really contemporary about the current moment, but I'm just worried that they're just capitalizing off of, you know, the Me Too movement. And it's just like, what's in, what's cool? And a bunch of marketing executives are like, we need to start greenlighting these films. Like they're gonna make so much money. And that's how I feel about these didactic films like yeah i can definitely see that
0: i mean look and i 100 percent believe that she just wanted this movie made so she could play like the mum character (laughs) like i feel like i don't know it was it was definitely lacking a bit of like genuine sincerity anyways uh today we're going to be talking about a couple of things we're going to do smaller segments today rather than one large one because there's just quite a few things to talk about uh we're going to start off uh talking about nfts non-fungible tokens because that seems to be like a word that I'm seeing everywhere and I don't fully understand. (laughs) Me, cryptocurrency, what? Uh, But Mitch is going to explain some of that for us today. And then uh, we're going to move into a discussion kind of starting off about the Atlanta shooting, but I wanted to delve into the aftermath of it. There's been a lot of claims of like, quote unquote, tension between the black and Asian community, lots of accusations of infighting. Uh, But yeah, Mitch, I'm going to just get you to jump in there and introduce... NFTs.
1: So you guys may have heard about these things called NFTs in the past few weeks. They've just been everywhere. And they've just been on my mind so much because I think they're, well, sort of ridiculous, but we'll get into this. And also, I feel like they just really condense so many of the themes that we've been talking about, even in the past few weeks on this podcast about capitalism and commodification and I think there's a lot of really interesting discussions to be had so join me Sliha, as we talk about the blockchain and NFTs and then and maybe get into something uh, more interesting
0: I'm, al- I'm already it. lost but continue
1: okay well <laughs> NFTs what are they they stand for non-fungible token which pretty much is a way that we can attribute ownership of a digital asset like a photo album digital art or any sort of file to a single person so the way it does that, the way it attributes ownership is through this technology called the blockchain, the mystic blockchain, which ooh. is ooh, <laughs> which is what uh, bitcoins are built upon. So the blockchain is pretty much this, uh, it's a digital ledger that is public. It keeps track of all crypto transactions and now NFT ownership. And because it's decentralized, viewable by everyone, and it builds upon itself like a chain, makes sense. Uh, it is secure and irreversible. Which is why people think it's the future, both for currency and also now for art, because it can mark ownership in an irreversible way.
0: Wait, so are Bitcoin's blockchains as well?
1: Yeah, it uses the digital ledger technology of blockchains. to record their transactions. Yeah,
0: because I remember when Bitcoin started to become a thing, everybody was like, this is the future. And to this day, I mean, I don't fucking know shit about Bitcoins, And I feel like they're maybe not the future just because, like, it seems I only know, like, stock dude bros that talk about Bitcoins. (laughs) But
1: anyway. Well, I think it is the future if your future is like this capitalist hellscape where everything is just about transactions. And we just need, we need capitalism, but without the government. It's pure libertarian stuff.
0: Yeah, it just sounds libertarian to me.
1: So there have been some really notable NFT sales, so sales of digital artworks uh, that are ascribed to certain people through NFTs and the blockchain. The most significant one is of this JPEG file by an artist called Beeple, which sold for, wait for it, well, actually... Do you want to guess, Leah? How much do you think this work of art would go for? Just imagine okay. just the most wonderful work of art you could imagine.
0: Is this like an art curator that bought this? I, I believe like so. It's an art curator that bought it. Uh,
1: I'd think so for the amount of money okay. it went for.
0: Okay. And this is like more available than like the regular Bitcoin. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to blind guess and say $100,000. Mm. Actually, wait. No, I'm going to guess higher than that because- Art is more expensive than $100,000. But I also have like really fucking limited understanding of how much things cost. Um, I'm going to say $800,000. It's more. A million dollars. More. $3 million? Uh,
1: maybe jump higher. <laughs> higher increments.
0: <laughs> $20 million. It's even more. $50 million.
1: Uh, you're getting close. And this is USD, by the way. What? Yeah.
0: Okay, somebody bought a JPEG for over $50 million. It's a
1: really big JPEG. But it's it went for $69 million, which is around 90 million Australian. And this artwork itself is a collage of 5,000 other images, uh, which, I mean, it's just blowing my mind.
0: Yeah, I don't really understand these things. It's pretty
1: wild. And there's been sales by like artists like Grimes that sold millions of dollars worth of NFTs and... I know Nyan Cat, you know the classic internet meme.
0: Man, I used to say Nyan Cat. Nyan. Am I just wrong or? You-
1: I'm. I don't know. We can <laughs> move on. But that sold for half a million dollars as well.
0: Wow. I mean, I'd pay half a million dollars for that. That's fair.
1: So, why are NFTs blowing up? What is so valuable about these?
0: Uh, wait. i want gonna guess. Go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess and say it's because people feel exclusive. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, well, people. Because look, I feel like I kind of get it. Because people do like having things. Hmm. I mean, that's why like you see people spend like, you know, $500,000 on like this obscure piece of Star Wars set thing that was randomly. Or some people spend so much money on like this one cloak touched by Alan Rickman on the Harry Potter set. Like I feel like it's, it's fandom vibes.
1: Yeah, well, there's I guess that's, that's one aspect of it for sure. That people like owning things which are individual and original. And then also people buy that sort of stuff because they think it may accrue value in the future. It's like an investment of sorts. Like a stock. And the reason NFTs are blowing up is because... I mean, we don't really know. It's the economy. It's irrational. People think that there may be value there in the future and people just throw all their money well, at It's these all yuppies. just
0: made up. I mean, by choosing to believe that it will potentially be valuable in the future and putting money in it, you inherently make it valuable. Exactly. It's very like, I mean, the economy doesn't exist in my opinion. So. Well, it's
1: all speculative. Like everything in It's just made
0: is. up. All of it is just a concept.
1: NFTs are the new thing. It's cool. And yuppies yeah. think there may be value to, you know, extract here. Uh, I mean, in recent years, Bitcoin has been shooting up in value and that's all speculative. Uh, and because people missed out with that cryptocurrency trend, they want to get on the NFT trend before they miss out. So what do NFTs mean for us?
0: Yeah. Why are we talking about this? And here's the thing, though.
1: Yeah. The reason that I find NFTs so interesting is because in a way it's so uninteresting. And, and we'll get into that because I see it from two perspectives. What do NFTs mean for creators and asset owners? And also, what does it mean for consumers like you and I? For owners, this makes sense. Ownership is imaginary. Property isn't real, even in a material sense. Me owning a piece of land, for example, that isn't real. That's just something that we agree upon it's in the paper our minds. that you sign. Exactly. And that's what capitalism is built upon. But the way I see NFTs is that capitalism has figured out a way to sell things that don't even exist, to mark ownership <laughs> over just completely immaterial yeah, things.
0: Yeah, that was like my first response because I'm just like, who the fuck is paying money for this thing that, like, Doesn't really like you. Don't need to pay money to own this thing when you can have access to it anyway. Like, why would you pay extra money for like an imaginary label? But I guess people do.
1: And people see this as an artistic revolution. I mean, people, the artist that sold the JPEG for you know seventy million dollars, said that without the NFTs, there's just legitimately no way to collect digital art. And when I hear stuff like that, I think we've been able to share digital art over the internet for what, decades now? Mm -hmm. Like, for you and I, this is the primary source for years that we have just consumed everything in. Yeah. And people are pretending like art only becomes valid once it can be commodified, once it can be bought.
0: That's capitalism, baby. That's
1: capitalism. And that's why I'm so interested in this. The artist Banksy, you know Banksy?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I know Banksy. (laughs) Okay,
1: okay. So some of these art collectors that own an original Banksy piece, they turned one of his artworks into an NFT and then proceeded to burn the original artwork Uh, As and now saying the artwork only exists uh, in NFT form and sold it for like four hundred thousand dollars, and for them they're saying that you know this is an artistic revolution, like this marks the event of art moving from the physical space to the digital space. And I'm like, why does it only become valid once capitalism and commodification recognizes it? Like this just seems. And also, Banksy is an anti-capitalist artist. Like these people, I was just gonna say that. The, it just makes no sense to me. But I
0: also just like it. Just goes to show that we're in like a capitalist dystopia. I mean, this is like the we kind are. of thing that happens when we like upload our consciousness onto like the cloud. It's just like imagine being like this was like valuable, but now I'm gonna destroy it and then up like make a digital version, and now it's ten times more valuable. What the fuck is the difference? It's still a thing. But yeah, I just feel like it's all. It's literally just all conceptual it's all about perceived ideas of ownership perceived ideas of like exclusivity and perceived ideas of like the clout you receive from having this this imaginary thing mm. that we all imagine in our collective delusion
1: and building upon our conversation about commodification a few episodes ago i feel like this just perfectly describes this all the, this whole process and from the perspective of consumers uh, an article which i found incredibly interesting was that Gucci is now selling virtual sneakers. I heard about this. You can now for $12 USD get Gucci sneakers that you technically own, but you can only wear them in augmented reality. They aren't actually real, which people will do for two minutes, share a photo on Instagram for clout. And then forget about.
0: Oh my god, I hate this so much.
1: It's ridiculous. I hate
0: this like this is this you know what this fucking reminds me of? This is like some the Lorax shit where they're like cell bottled air. Like it's just Yes.
1: <laughs> but that's actually something. That's something. Yeah, I know,
0: it's still a physical it's thing. A you thing. get to breathe the air, but like imagine it's just imaginary and like you could just hack that shit and have your own fake what about like knockoff augmented reality gucci sneakers like do you really need the real ones you're not even wearing them yeah <laughs> exactly just, it makes no sense it's just so dystopian i hate
1: this like capitalism has figured out a way to so we get the thrill of buying something without actually having to buy something yes,
0: yes literally and, and that's
1: what ca- the ideology of capitalism is for me and what this has proven to me is that people just love earning things we just want to buy shit that's just how we're socialized that's how we create meaning it's through the idea of property and ownership
0: yeah well when you live in a society under capitalism that only really places value on like commodity and like like the literal like monetary value of things then it makes sense that we start to think that our value comes from either our productive output or what we own our capital and so if you're gonna like go and buy these fucking 12 dollar like gucci fake augmented reality sneakers yeah like yeah it probably will make you feel a bit good about yourself in a world that doesn't really let you feel good about yourself unless you do dumb shit like this
1: i feel like in our consumeristic culture which exists it has constantly created new commodities to buy manifesting demand and desire where there wasn't any before Mm. but we just like the process of buying it seems we just love the activity of buying it doesn't matter we don't even need to get anything in return we just like shopping
0: Yeah, like, we'll just, like, I mean, this is essentially online shopping, putting it in your cart, and then never receiving it. But it just feels fucking good, doesn't it?
1: I was watching a lecture by Slavoj Žižek, this uh, postmodern philosopher, and he tells this story, which I just find incredibly amusing, uh, that retail stores in America, in in their Walmart, have to have employees, and their sole purpose is to pick up trolleys that have been left behind full of goods. And Žižek is like, you're like, why are they doing this? And... The uh the workers say, well, people come into the store, and this is like what he says is the impoverished middle mm. class. They come into the store and they they walk around the store and they fill up the shopping cart with all these things they want and all these things they need, and then they just leave it because they got so much joy just from the idea of buying something. They don't even need to get anything in return. It's just the idea of like look at all these things we could be earning. It's the yeah. process of shopping that we find exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean, like we do this. Mitch and I go on IKEA dates all the time in window shop i'm just like this is the kitchen that i want this is the couch that i would buy for it this is how i would decorate it this is the kind of tiling that i would have and it's just fun mm. it's just fun to like because there is an element of creativity and curation to it which i think to be honest is probably at the core of why it's fun for like human people mm. it's like because it, it, like we live in a society that doesn't really allow us to be very creative unless we have certain i guess funds that we obviously don't fucking have and it's just fun to like imagine possibilities yeah. and this is what it's about it's about possibilities like all the times that i window shop it's not because i'm greedy it's because it's about the possibilities the ways in which i could express myself had i had these resources, especially in like influencer culture and like celebrity culture where I constantly watch people with wealth live beautiful lives mm-hmm. and I'm like well if I had wealth this is how I would live my beautiful life
1: exactly I got so many books on this bookshelf right next to me that I haven't read I just loved the process of buying it it just made me feel like good yeah and that's what NFTs I think really get to the heart of it's just we like the idea of, of owning things that's how we've been socialized but even if we think it's silly in this conversation right now why should we care well Firstly, some of these artworks are going for so much money. I'm sort of convinced it's just money laundering. Just, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like there's, there's something sus going I on just
0: here. Yeah, it seems very convenient to be able to buy nothing and spend a million dollars to buy nothing. Surely you're just moving money from one account to another account. Yeah, exactly. Right?
1: And then more important than that and more devastating than that is NFTs actually take a massive toll on the environment. Okay, explain. Yeah. Well, I know it sounds weird because we're talking I'm about like, all this immaterial the stuff. It's digital space.
0: It doesn't exist, but because, I guess it does.
1: So the blockchain technology that NFTs and also Bitcoins are built upon just takes an inconceivable amount of computing power to process and you know continue. And despite all of this art and transactions existing in cyberspace, we have to recognize that this is actually destroying our natural resources, our, our world, our environment. And I just think that it's so fucked up that we have found a way that is just so destructive to just simply mark ownership. That's all NFTs yeah, it's like are. It's not
0: actually doing anything. It's
1: just the marking of ownership.
0: And I find it really interesting because actually, I'm pretty sure I did come across an article about NFTs being bad for the environment. And it was something along the lines of like creating a digital artwork on like, like with an NFT takes up like, x times the amount of energy that just making a physical rendition of that in a studio would and then you would just like sell the like material object and then like that would kind of be it the moment you've finished making that item it stops its toll on the environment because it exists now like you've used up resources from the environment you've made the thing and now it's done whereas with nfts it's not that it's just an ongoing cyberspace thing that requires a continual use of i guess like computing power and electricity and it's just a bit fucked isn't it
1: exactly Well, that's why I wanted to talk about NFTs because I feel like it's the mark of something not so good. And I'm very resistant to all the breathy opinion pieces that talk about how this is the future.
0: Yeah, I just, yeah, I know. I definitely see a lot of like dude bro excitement around NFTs and I'm just like, "Mm, none of this NFT, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency shit. It seems like a good idea to me, Mm. to be honest. It just seems like dystopian.
1: Well anyways. Well
0: anyways <laughs> moving on. I really want to talk about I guess the recent hate crime in Atlanta, but just like the waves, the discourse coming off it, because there's quite a lot, too much to fit into the follow up, which is why it's getting its own little section here. Um something that is kind of becoming a bit of a big deal, I think, in a lot of like leftist activist spaces online at the moment post the Atlanta shooting is intercommunity solidarity. So there's been like claims, it's this real, I'm seeing like legitimate like headlines about this like really mythicized tension between black and Asian communities, which I feel like is, to be honest, being made to look worse than it is by like white people and outsiders. But it's this idea that like, oh, the black community isn't really sharing solidarity with the Asian community during the, like this aftermath. Like the black community is not being supportive, is not being there for the Asian community, is not you know, like signal boosting and sharing and talking about this thing like they should be and like everybody else is, which I think is like actually just, I mean, I think that's a bit anti-black to be making those claims. Like it just seems a bit racist to me. It's like really a white man just shot up a bunch of like Asian sex workers and you are going to like come at the black community right now. Like that's who you're going to be mad at right now. It just seems like blame is being placed in the wrong spot especially because like there was literally a black slash Asian solidarity march not long after that. So it's all very mythicized, I think. I think where some of this is stemming from is there has been some pushback um, from black activist corners about the co-opting of Black Lives Matter movements and sayings and hashtags by the Asian community post the Atlanta shooting. So an example of that is after people were shot in the Atlanta shooting, there was hashtag say their names going around. So a lot of Asian activists or even just like Asian people online were sharing hashtag say their names uh, in an effort to bring awareness to the actual identities of the various people that were shot um, during the Atlanta attack and to humanize them. And I guess as a pushback against the media kind of washing over this, it was like, this is important, we matter, stop hating on us and like say their names. But the problem with this, which has been highlighted by many people more important than me, is that Say Their Names is a change from hashtag say her name. And hashtag say her name was birthed in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement as a direct response to the erasure of the death of black women by police brutality. So especially during like 2014 uh, kind of times after Mike Brown was shot and there were those really big Ferguson riots and Black Lives Matter was really catapulted into mainstream media and became an everyday kind of household topic. There was issues within, I guess, community like about misogyny and the fact that black women who get murdered by police do not receive the sympathy and the worldwide attention that black men who get shot by the police have the capability of receiving. And it's like a very legitimate conversation about misogyny. Like it's a very legitimate conversation about the fact that even in like Black Lives Matter and any other kind of, specific movement about uplifting a certain community there can still be levels of oppression which is like yeah okay true um and so hashtag say her name kind of became a thing then to highlight the women that were forgotten by the movement okay which is i think yeah like makes sense we should want to uplift like uplift these women we should want justice for these women and then uh after brianna taylor was murdered, um, but George Floyd was kind of m- like mostly what people were talking about, say her name, I think made a really, kind of became mainstream then. Like hashtag say her name became like really mainstream and used fucking everywhere by everybody after Breonna Taylor's death. And since then, hashtag say their name has become a thing or hashtag say his name or hashtag say insert person's name has really become common anytime a marginalized person uh, dies or is murdered by the institution or by like a white supremacist. And there's been criticism now after this Atlanta massacre when a lot of Asian communities are using the hashtag say their names from the black community and from particularly like anti-misogyny black activists were like this is a very specific hashtag for a very specific movement designed to uplift a very specific type of person. Please do not co-opt it for this thing. There are other numerous hashtags that are very specific to this shooting the main one being hashtag stop Asian hate is probably what most people are using when discussing this topic especially more prominent activists are using hashtag stop Asian hate like please use that hashtag please don't use hashtag say her name which I think is very reasonable it's the same way that we're not doing hashtag Asian lives matter because it trivializes hashtag black lives matter there is no need to compare struggles Like this is solidarity. Solidarity is not comparing struggles and solidarity is not co-opting each other's movements. And that I think most people will not argue with. But these issues that are coming up, I think are leading to a lot of Asian communities like attacking black activists for being anti-Asian or being like, you don't support us. or like. And this is where all this like tension between the black and Asian communities is coming from. And I want to break it down because... I was having a conversation with two other people recently who are white that seem to view this as like, a, oh, look at all this infighting. And I really kind of most of the time don't like the term infighting. I think it is used a lot. I think it's especially used by a lot of white leftists, usually targeted towards people of color having tensions between their communities. that I see at least. I know there is something legitimate to say about infighting in the left as a whole. Like there is definitely an issue with non unity in the left. But I find that the term infighting is often used to trivialize quite genuinely nuanced interactions between oppressed communities. And so, with the Black Asian tension criticisms that are going around, it's frustrating me because, like, I think it's fair for the Black community to feel frustrated right now. Like, Black Lives Matter might seem mainstream and normal now, but it took a long time for that to take off. And when it did take off, most of the original activists from the Ferguson protests are now dead. Like there is, this is not just an Instagram hashtag. There is legitimate long-term activism, dangerous activism behind the Black Lives Matter movement that is fucking important. Like there is a history here. I know that a lot of us just see it on TikTok now and we kind of forget the roots of things. But like Black Lives Matter started off. Pretty fucking radical and now it's become commodified. It's been co-opted by corporations. There is so much more to say. But it's like it's a decentralized movement where like there are so many different elements to it. There are so many different groups fighting for different things under the umbrella movement, Black Lives Matter. And I mean, some people want black liberation, some people want to abolish the police, whatever. There's different forms of it, right? So it's a big thing that, you know, started from a lot of violence, from a lot of victimizing of black communities. And so it's fair for black communities to then be frustrated um, about the Asian community co-opting slogans because what we all like to conveniently forget, and I'm saying Asian, not as East Asian, but just like all Asians, including me as a Pakistani person, as a South Asian person, is we love to forget our own roles in like subjugating black people. I'm Pakistani ethnically, Um, And, like, Pakistan used to have black slaves. There there was, like, a black slave population in Pakistan, as there was in a lot of Arab countries, as there were in a lot of East Asian countries. Like, we are responsible for a lot of oppression against black people. And so it's fair if the black community is frustrated at us cop, because I'm seeing a lot of, like, oh, like we're all oppressed under capitalism. We're all oppressed under white supremacy. You know, look at all this infighting between the black and Asian community when really, shouldn't they know that their real enemy is white supremacy? And that bothers me because that lacks so much nuance. And to be honest, that is a criticism that I see from white people that don't understand that, like, yes, you oppressed black people, but also like a lot of fucking people oppressed black people. Like there is, there are racial hierarchies involved. Like, yes, Asian people are oppressed under white supremacy but also Asian people have in the past oppressed black people. And you can't forget. It's funny because we seem to understand it when we talk about white women, like oppressed as women, but also have oppressed non-white people. Like there are layers to intersectionality. And that is, it's the same thing.
1: Well, I was going to say, and I think you're completely right, that, you know, disclosure, I am a white person. But when I saw this stuff immediately, I don't think I had quite, you know, the same reaction is you because I did come from maybe the bit reductionist perspective as in you know this is all the same issue and I feel like that's a tension that you know as politically minded people that is constantly going on between struggles that are so extremely specific which is what we're talking about with intersectionality how all these struggles can intersect to create a completely specific experience experience and then also that we want to create change and often the best way to Uh, engage with that is through these really monolithic ideas of entire peoples. So when we talk about Marxism, we're talking about there are two types of people in this world. There are people who own stuff and there are people that work for a living. And while that can be really valuable in a broad sense to talk about how to create social change, I think when I, and when I personally apply that to think, well, Black Lives Matter and Asian Lives Matter, it's all capitalism. It becomes it does become really reductionistic. And I feel like there's an ongoing tension. And I think you're really right in recognizing that it actually is probably more problematic and more harmful in this very moment.
0: Yeah, like class reductionism is a thing, which is, I think, something that a lot of, like... POC leftists say to white leftists I think a lot of white I mean I'm a socialist and I think a lot of white socialists can be class reductionist because yes we're all oppressed by capitalism and white supremacy but also like there are other power imbalances that exist that are not as obvious but that are there and so I'm frustrated and I'm like really genuinely quite offended by a lot of white conversations I'm seeing where like white people, you guys are not even fucking part of this conversation between Asian people and black people are like standing on the outskirts of the discussion and being like, look at this infighting. Shut the fuck up. Like this is so much, this is not infighting. This is like a very important and new, like these are racial nuances that actually matter. And it's so reductionistic to just say, oh, it's infighting. We're all oppressed under capitalism. Like there is so much more to this. And it is fair to want the Asian community to come up with their own slogans when people have died for yours. Especially because a lot of like people from marginalized communities oppress other people from marginalized communities. And it's fair for black people to be upset that a community they don't feel has historically been behind them is now co-opting their slogans. It's fair. It's a fair fucking criticism. I could say that about literally any groups. It's the same way that a lot of like straight people tend to use love is love and stuff like that and it's like shut the f- this is for like non-straight relations what are you doing like you don't need to co-opt this thing it's not your struggle and it's it's the same thing I find that one of the kind of more frustrating that comes to my mind is like I mean I experienced a lot of racism in my university times and I went to a university that like was predominantly either white or east asian and I'm south asian and probably most of the racism that I experienced at uni like in person to my face was from east asian people because of the population that was at this uni and it's like yeah like you guys are capable of being racist to us as i'm capable of being racist to a black person like there are capabilities of racism and it's okay to be frustrated at another person of another marginalized group for oppressing you and i think it to like just tell everybody that it's going to be kumbaya and we've all got to be best friends is the same way that we that white women tell us not to tear down other women when we call out white feminism it's the same vibe to me like you do not get to Tell people that they are being disruptive, that they are being divisive when they have like genuine complaints about how their work is being stepped on. And I feel like I want to do a little disclaimer. It's like I don't think that all Asian people are racist to black people or anything like that. But I do think this tension is mythicized and really made to be bigger than it is. Um, And then part of the reason that it's kind of become that way is like scapegoating. Like a lot of people want to make us look like these like ethnic savages fighting amongst ourselves when we should be fighting white supremacy. And I just think that's not fair. That's not fair. Like black people have died fighting for Black Lives Matter and it's not fair for the Asian community who, there are individuals from our community that don't give a fuck about black lives that suddenly are racially political now because their lives have been threatened. And it's not fair to co-opt another movement when you you never gave a fuck about that movement.
1: Ah, but me, the learned white socialist, realizes that all this infighting is uh, pitiful and banal.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I just, I do really want to say, like, there is plenty of solidarity between the black and Asian community where it fucking counts with actual activists. Actual activists are out here creating solidarity, but it's people that are just fucking hashtagging on Twitter, that are just making, like, cutesy political TikTok videos. They're the problem. They're the ones that, like, allow this mythicized tension between black and Asian communities. When really, like it's a big deal in the sense that we need to understand and respect cultural boundaries and we need to understand and respect racial boundaries. But also like this tension is not like actually fucking disrupting the work between black and asian communities there are black and asian solidarity marches happening there are asian activists that have been pro black lives matter for a long time there are black activists that are out here fighting against white supremacy to support the asian community like the solidarity is there but i feel like the the activism isn't necessarily a problem here it's this fucking hashtag business
1: mm, hashtag activism
0: hashtag activism this is where the issues lie because like It's a lot of people that are currently engaging in hashtag activism read the Atlanta shooting that have previously never really engaged with, like, Black Lives Matter hashtags. And that's kind of why this is a problem in the first place. I don't think anyone would give a fuck about you using random hashtags if you were actually doing genuine activism work. But if you, as, like – and, again, this is not specific to East Asians, but all Asians, including, like, people like myself – like, if you have never really – supported the black community, if you regularly in your everyday life perpetuate anti-blackness by the stereotypes that you use, by the language that you use, by the words and memes that you use, by your silence on this issue, and now suddenly you're hashtagging Asian Lives Matter and say their names, you are the problem. You are the problem because you are not supportive of this community, but you want to use their work for your own gain. And I guess this kind of leads us into a conversation about like what activism is and like activism versus awareness.
1: Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts on this uh, hashtag activism business. I think the main issue with it is, I mean, despite it being a really valuable way to sort of create a single cohesive message, it sort of exists in these I guess what you can call, um, it's a memetic culture. It turns into a meme, not in a humorous sense, but in the sense that it can be manipulated and repeated. And so I feel like the blank lives matter or insert, you know, cause here, lives matter.
0: Or hashtag say insert name.
1: Exactly. It becomes disconnected from uh, its original context, which is the process of commodification. Sorry, I can't help myself. But (laughs) I think this hashtag activism does mirror The commodity form in the sense that it becomes removed from an original context and then becomes so repeatable, so adjustable and so spreadable in a way that it becomes removed from anything singularly significant. It loses its meaning. It loses its
0: meaning. And this is, I mean, this is why there is so much upset about the Asian community co-opting slogans from the black community. Because if we just like, if all the communities start using these black specific slogans, they will lose their meaning as black specific uh, slogans and they will lose their significance to the black community and all the work the black community has done to bring awareness to these issues, to fight these issues, kind of gets pushed aside. Um, And I think a really great example of this and especially like memeing these things is Breonna Taylor. Because... Hashtag say her name is kind of now mostly associated with Beyoncé Taylor, even though it precedes her death. Um, but Beyoncé Taylor was fucking memed, and there is like li- there is literature on this. There is rage on this from Black activists, and then people are like, "What do you mean memed? No one's making fun of her." And it's like, "Yeah, but we don't mean memed by funny. We mean memed when it loses meaning, kind of like Hello Kitty uh, says a cab and stuff like that. Like people are just uploading like cute Instagram selfies, and the caption is." Uh, hashtag justice for Breonna Taylor. And it's like not really relevant to the movement. It's just spreading awareness. It's just showing that you're woke. It's just showing that you care about this thing. And like, yeah, that's that's nice that you want to spread awareness for Breonna Taylor, but also like her name is now not about her. It's about symbolizing your political alignment. Like, you're not really doing much for Brianna Taylor by sharing this hashtag. What you are doing is signalling to the world who you are and where you stand and what you find interesting and what yeah. you care about.
1: The death of a very real person becomes a symbol for something abstract and it becomes used for clout in a way.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. It's like a, haha, look at me. I know who Brianna Taylor is. I'm fucking woke. That's what it is. And this is becoming, I think, like a big problem with like hashtag activism, which is why, I mean, like, if we're just going to talk about what activism even is for a second, because I don't really see those things as activism. Like my idea of what I believe activism is, is like on the ground, like street work. Activism is like organising protests. It's organising in general, be it protests, be it marches, be it sit-ins, be it strikes. Like activism is going out into the street and solving a problem head on. It is like g- like physically, materially engaging with an issue I don't like hashtag activism is not really activism it's spreading awareness and they're not the same thing even though I think we tend to confuse them a lot at the moment especially in the digital age I think we really confuse spreading awareness and actual activism because like something that I've experienced a lot is like when I go on a podcast episode or I, I guest on something or like I get interviewed for something People usually start to introduce me as like an online activist and I'm always just like, no, I'm not an activist. I create posts about things and I talk about things and I bring awareness to issues, but I'm not an activist because an activist would imply that I'm out there changing social policies, challenging the structure of society, creating material change for people's lives. And I'm not really doing that. I wish I was, but I'm not. And it's the truth. Like I am not materially changing anything. I'm just starting conversations. That's not actually activism. It's raising awareness. It's not the same fucking thing.
1: Yeah, awareness and education is important. But let's not misconstrue these definitions and these roles because they are both important. And if we just think that activism is anything that is vaguely educational, anything that is, is vaguely discursive, we're going to have an issue.
0: Which, I mean, we are, because even if you look at now, I feel like a frustration that I see a lot, and especially from, like, just our listeners that I talk to, is, like, when we see a bad thing happen, and we're all talking about it, an example is, like, sexual assault in the parliament, and now we're talking about consent laws and stuff, and we are constantly talking about it online with our online, like, so, like awareness, hashtag activism, whatever, and then we're, like, disappointed that we don't see change. Like, how come the parliament's not doing anything about this when we keep talking Didn't about it on did they see Instagram? my Twitter post? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's, like... This is why it's not activism and it's just raising awareness because, like, we didn't actually send, like, a petition to the parliament. At least I, as an individual, didn't send a petition to the parliament asking for XYZ forms of consent education to enter parliament. Chanel Contos did that. We can call her an activist if we want because she actually went out there and created some structural change. But I didn't do that. I think it's important to discuss, like, the difference between actual activism and hashtag activism because... That is how we prevent issues like this uh, mythicized tension between the black and Asian community. Because if we understood the difference between actual activism and hashtag activism, then we would understand the frustration actual activists have, who have you know, like lost things, have been affected by their work in the black community, who then see their work co-opted, commodified, and betrayed by, like, other ethnicities and hashtag activism. The way their work is transitioning from one to the other is hurtful, is unfair, and we have to understand that. We have to understand that so we don't go and fuck these people over and so we actually have true solidarity between us all and then we do actually unite to fight white supremacy.
1: So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I think this is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you our listeners and specifically we'd like to thank the lovely lovely patrons pia beck naya rachelle sarah liz bell and katie so thank you so so much
0: if you thought our discussion today was interesting thought-provoking or something you learned from please consider donating to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash saliha if signing up isn't your thing you can also donate to our paypal link at paypal.me forward slash saliha to support future episodes both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Slea Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode.
1: And follow my Instagram at Mitches.myscellania for discussions around film, books, and music.
0: Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there.
1: Peace out. Bye. Bye.